Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Today on Latin American Intersections, an update on Venezuela and a discussion about Venezuelan-Chinese relations. We'll be exploring this topic with returning guest, Dr. John Polga, Professor of Political Science at the U.S. Naval Academy, and Brian Fonseca, Director of the Jack D. Gordon Institute of Public Policy at Florida International University. Both Brian and John closely monitor Venezuelan affairs as part of their work, including Venezuela's extranational and extra-regional relationships. In this episode, we focus on China, but we'll be back to discuss Venezuelan relations with other actors, including Russia, Cuba, and of course, the United States. After listening to the discussion, be sure to send us any questions you have on Venezuelan foreign affairs through any of the podcast's social media profiles, at LATAM Podcast. Hope you enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, I have John Polga and Brian Fonseca on the line with me so we can give you an update on Venezuela. And following that, we'll go ahead and discuss a little bit about the Russian and Chinese uh, relationships with Venezuela, uh, and especially compared to the rest of the region. So, John, how are you? Good afternoon, Michael. I'm just fine. Thank you. Thanks for, for the invitation to come back. Well, thank you for being back. Uh, your expertise is always appreciated. And Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Hey, how come John's already been on here and I haven't been uh, Because yet? you're really hard That's to get a hold Michael. of, Brian. Like, <laughs> I, I think you need like two or three secretaries to coordinate your, your <laughs> schedule. No, listen. I'm I'm honored to to be on. Uh, this is a this is a great great opportunity, and of course, an opportunity to talk with with John is always excellent. Yes, you- yes, indeed. Well, and I just want to say, I am I always feel privileged when I have uh, not just one but two experts in the room for uh, a number of topics. So there's a lot of things that intersect with what's going on in Venezuela, and hopefully, we can touch on a couple of those in the twenty to twenty five minutes that I might squeeze out of you here. Um, Great. So uh, before we get into uh, the topic of Russia and China's relationship with Venezuela specifically, John, could you give us um, an update on Venezuela, the most urgent matters at hand from the last week or so? Holy smokes. Um, (laughs) Among other things, I think probably the the most 
top of the top headline uh, out of Venezuela this past week was the announcement yesterday that uh, the government of Nicolas Maduro uh, is deciding to lop off five zeros from its currency um, because of hyperinflation. You're now dealing in, you know, people are are paying millions of bolivares for their goods. And so this is the government's idea to, uh, I, I guess, improve things. It's not going to be successful. Well, and, and what does lopping three or however many zeros they're going to lop off at the end of the day, That's right. how does that help them at all? Does it, does it do anything? It, I mean, in the long term, it doesn't. And, and in the short term, it's going to make things much more, much more complicated for Venezuelans, their daily lives, right? When you're talking about gasoline, that I think costs something like 20, 20 bolivares for gasoline, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to pay 0. 0.000, you know, two, two bolivares for it. Uh, you know, the, me- the metro in Caracas, which costs very little. So these things are almost free. And so lopping off five zeros is going gonna, is gonna to make paying for that impossible because there are no denomination kind of bills that are small enough to, to, to make those payments. And, and just to underscore uh, John's point, I think it's important to, to at least recognize what's really driving this. And that is, I mean, an uncontrollable inflation rate. Um, and, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I heard, I've heard estimates coming out over the last week or so that we're on, on the march to a, a million percent inflation. B- uh, Bloomberg came out with a million percent yesterday or the day before, and today they updated it. Their own index of, of what things cost, kind of an informal calculator of inflation, they estimated that it could be between kind of 1.2 and 2 million percent. Now, at this point, is anybody even paying bolivars for for goods? I mean, for essential goods? I mean, from what I understand, a lot of people are paying in whatever other currency they can get their hands on. Uh, There's a lot of bartering going on, too. Uh, So, you know, there's a barter economy. There's a dollarized economy. To a certain degree, there are other currencies used as well, especially in border regions. Now, that falls into another question real quick before I forget. Um, CSIS uh, has been uh, talking recently about how blockchain might be able to uh, help yes. in Venezuela. So um, could both of you give me your opinion on that real quick? <laughs> Brian? <laughs> <laughs> Let's take it to the cybersecurity uh, expert. <laughs> can... No, no, no. Look, I, I don't know if there's anything that can help uh, Venezuela at the moment um, outside of a, I mean, a, a full-on um, you know, reorganization of, of economy, society, politics, etc. I mean, that's uh, right. The inflation rate is absurd. Um, and, and the challenge is we're trying to find other avenues to secure transactions. Um, that I think is, is, is the intentions of sort of uh, where folks are starting to raise the question of how technology can come in and help streamline, um, you know, some of the transactions taking place, you know, across borders, for example, for, for, for you know, for starts. But, but I think the other thing that, that's really important that shouldn't be left out is what all of this has also done is really uh, um, um, you know, exponentially increase the illicit commercial sphere, right? So yes. on top of sort of the formal economic uh, uh, system that, that, you know, that we're talking about dropping zeros and inflation, et cetera, you have this growing illicit commercial sphere uh, in which the black market is dominating. And so that, that brings a really important challenge to any type of, of – uh, of gaining control over currency, gaining control over just sort of the day-to-day transactions that take place in the sovereignty, country. right? So, Economic sovereignty. Sovereignty, yeah. absolutely. 
Um, and so I, I think that's also another really important aspect that's uh, all sort of, uh, I think, intertwined with, you know, with the inflation rate, uh, with the state of economy, with the barter system that, that is growing as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a really you're talking about a full out overhaul. It, Mind you, the Cubans have been trying to get off this dual currency yeah. system for like 15 years. And now, when you talk about it. bartering between a regular between any two regular citizens of Venezuela, what is probably the most valuable resource that they can barter? I think it depends on where you are and it depends on what yeah. moment in time. Right. So in the past, there have been shortages of cooking oil or uh you know, arena pan to cook arepas or other other different goods. And so depending on where you are in the country and what you have access to or don't have access to, those things could be considered more or less valuable. So more uh, often than not food resources. Yes, basically. Basic, ba- basic necessities. Diapers are a very important uh, good that is in high, high demand. Yeah. I know that Medicine. baby formula is in very high demand. And the, I, I, I would venture to guess, I don't know, uh, but I would venture to guess that Brian, uh, that medicine is, is the most, the highest in demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I think that one of the other sort of, uh, uh, in terms of the barter economy, just human capital. Sure. Right? Um, actually, uh, unfortunately, you're hearing surges in, in human trafficking, um, you know, and that human trafficking you know, is intended to, to generate right income in the absence of, of formal uh, uh, economic sectors, right? Or, or um, you know, uh, economic, the, the, the ability to generate formal, formal economy. And so right. I, I've heard stories um, all around sort of the diaspora communities um, of, you know, human trafficking, you know, forced prostitution, uh, in which those women are, are being forced into places like Trinidad and Tobago, they're, they're there for a few months and then they're brought back into Venezuela. Right. right? Um, and they, they made their money. So that that's another aspect of it, I think, which is really a dark aspect of, of this this bartering economy, the human capital side. Wow. Absolutely. I, I think this points to all of this, to to the fact that the changes the government is making right now are, are cosmetic changes. Uh, and they are they're not yeah. the deep seated structural reforms that the Venezuelan economy needs. Yeah, and John, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I, I don't think they have the capacity for structural reforms at this point. Um, I, well, it depends on on who. I mean, they I guess technically they probably would have the capacity, but but in order to undertake those reforms, that would probably spell the end of of the current administration, right? That would that would seal the right, fate. Of, almost almost a show that's right. That's right. Yes. So I, I well, think even, going back to the original, even without um, the administration as it is now, I mean, what what capacity does Venezuela have to implement new economic reforms at this point? I mean, uh, wait. well, I, I think one thing is, is, um, is sort of the, you know, the intellectual capacity. And I, I'm not referring to that so much. I, I think there's still smart people, uh, uh, certainly capable of, of, of injecting ideas into the system. The, the problem is the institutions have completely been eroded. Um, you know, and, and that's a, that's not an overnight fix, right. To, to reverse, um, the decay of the, the institutions of governance is going to be a big, big overhaul. And I, I'm not sure that that, um, that lift is there, largely because, again, you're talking about a government that is entrenched um, and is fighting for survival, mm-hmm. period, and has no intentions of, of walking out. Um, well, and it seems like 
the 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 other thing about the the government being entrenched is that a lot of people i feel like at this point are uh almost have no choice to participate in the illicit market as part of their survival um i would imagine that a lot of uh mid-grade military officers there who wouldn't otherwise participate or who who might not be involved in some of the things that they're involved in uh same thing with other government officials or any type of private entity that's left i mean you know what do you do besides get involved in or or take bribes for um any type of trafficking or smuggling or any other number of illicit activities at this point you know in order to survive but and, and that threatens the stability of the government Right, because in the end, there isn't enough money to go around, and and military officials right now are feeling the pinch. Um, yeah, and so herein lies, I, I think, you know, as part of a segue into the discussion of um, external actors. Right, this is where external actors are playing a, a, a critical role. Um, By external actors, are we referring the, mostly to Russia, China, and Cuba? No, well, okay. Uh, it depends on what role you want to. Ascribe. I'll add one. Turkey. Go ahead, John. Yeah, Turkey's playing a, an important role for Venezuela, um, and that's starting to, to kind of emerge on the scene now. Um, I think that there's a there's a direct flight now from Venezuela to Turkey. Um, so here's what, so what Venezuela on one end Venezuela is entrusting its gold to Turkey right now. It's refining its gold yeah. in Turkey as a way to avoid the economic sanctions against it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and so here's something that's so I think that um, when we talk about external actors, you, you have external actors that are putting pressure right on on the regime. Like the Lima and there group. are external actors that are like the Lima group, like the United States. Right. Uh, and then you have external actors that are, that are serving as pressure release valves for the regime. Right. Trying to relieve the pressure of the regime. Turkey, Russia, China um, all play Cuba to a far less extent, by the way. Because uh, I don't think they have a lot to contribute in terms of, of real resources outside of, of, of maybe sort of technical support. Cuba's role is much but, different, but yes. Uh, it is very different. But, but Russia and China, and now Turkey, um, you know, they play an important role in terms of relieving that pressure. I mean, if you, if you, if you track the news maybe about two weeks ago, um, the, the, Chinese, uh, the, the um, Venezuelan foreign minister, uh, uh, economic minister, finance minister, came out and said that China – uh, approved a five billion dollar loan to to Venezuela to support uh, the rebound in oil production, of which they they that's uh, right. Uh, again, according to media, authorized two hundred fifty million for immediate investment in Chinese Venezuelan joint ventures like Sinovenza, uh, 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 and so you know that. And by the way, that's a reversal of Chinese policy, uh, according to a lot of the think tanks out there, sort of tracking Chinese policy. Chinese policy was largely. We're not going to loan Venezuela another penny until they paid off all of the debt. And it was like that for a good well, two China's years, real... right? That's what they said as yeah, recently uh, as, and, as March, they were saying that. As recently as March. And so now the question is, why? Why all of a sudden have the Chinese said, you know what? Yeah, we understand that was our position, but we're going to change our position now. I, I think maybe, you know, one, one would consider, and I, you know, oilprice.com, Put out a really good piece after that announcement, essentially analyzing the fact that the that, that Chinese uh, would be very concerned about the decline in oil production, right? So in That's Venezuela, right. you're you're talking about uh, an oil production that is uh, uh, continuing a decline. We're we're anticipating it to drop below 
a million barrels per day in terms of production. That's down from about three million per day back in 2013. So you're talking about a you know a, a, a two thirds reduction in production. And right now, the way that the Chinese loans have been restructured, uh, China gets paid largely in oil. in oil provisions. And so China's got to be concerned that if the oil production collapses, they're not going to get any. Uh, that's return. absolutely right. So, but, but that's so one, at this point, they don't see so this going good money after bad. But if they can control some of that production directly or semi-directly, it's, then they have they they at least maintain their investment. Is that? Is it controlling the production? I I just think that China is not stupid. China wants to get paid and it knows if it has any hope at recouping some of its some of its investment in Venezuela, it needs to to further invest in the productive capacity of the country, which has collapsed, you know, has been essentially halved over the past 18 months. Yeah. And I'll tell you, John, what's interesting, though, is that uh, this has been the line, the last two major loans that the Chinese have given. The Chinese have given two previous $5 billion mm. loans, and a lot of the media reporting was centered on that it was intended to support uh, or reverse the decline in oil production. And so the question becomes, right. you know, I think the Chinese got fed up, went into a policy, said, look, we can't, you know, the mismanagement right. is just too rampant. And so unless the, China, unless the Venezuelans are willing to give some concessions, then the Chinese, for all intents and purposes, at least up and through July, said, hey, we're not, we're not investing another penny. But I think there's something else here, maybe under the surface. One is, you know, just sort of an understanding of Chinese, uh, you know, sort of uh, investment. Um, this is about investment, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, but but Chinese sort of invest in this concept of patient capital, right? They look for returns on 10 to 15 years, right? So Western capital is usually three to five years, right? That's when you look for your return. The Chinese look for the returns 10 to 15 years, so very long-term policy, non-policy interventionists, right? They're willing to take a little bit more risk in the near term because, again, they think more long-term. And there's been a lot of buzz out there about the rising price of oil. In fact, uh, some are speculating that the oil uh, oil could rebound back to, if not past, $100 a barrel, right? And so I right. wonder if this investment is thinking about that in the long term and whether or not the investment, by the way, comes with greater concessions. I mean, what if the Chinese uh, now started to buy – uh, access to mineral rights, or the Chinese started to now own the oil, inf- you know, the production but, infrastructure. Brian, I also right? have a wild card on that. So, what if the Chinese are also intending to have direct management in place over Venezuelan oil production? I mean, is that a possibility? But that's like, what I'm or saying. sending their people, their technical uh, experts, the... to stay there and to 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 revamp that sector. <laughs> but but that's the point I'm I'm making in mm-hmm. terms of concessions, right? Now, the Chinese have joint ventures on the ground, so they have a presence on the ground, right? Uh, Vents is the biggest joint venture the Chinese have. And if, if you do a readout of what the media was saying about the, the loan and the, you know, the amount that was authorized uh, for immediate investment, it was all about investing in the joint ventures. And, and, and when you invest in the joint ventures, you give some of that control over to the Chinese by virtue of ownership, right? And so I think that that's part of the intention. It's not to give to the government Absolutely. to continue to invest in social programs or right. It's about saying, hey, we have a very intense. Well, it sounds like they want some investment. de facto direct oversight at this point. So they don't throw good money after bad. And that's just kind of what I was getting at. Well, I mean, you know, and I don't want to mirror image, but but I, I guess if I was investing, I, I'd want and I, and I knew that the risks were high. I'd want probably a little bit more ownership equity um, and a little bit more control over the ability to shape the return on investment. You know, and, and again, one thing that's really important, I, get, I, I hear China, I mean, I hear Venezuela and Cuba compared all the time. The biggest difference between Cuba and Venezuela 
is that Venezuela sits on one of the world's largest oil reserves, right? And so the, the assets that the country has is just incredibly large. And so, you know, for those that are non, you know, sort of non-policy interventionists, right? They don't give a, they don't care if you're, 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 your your, uh, uh, dictatorships or or, uh, democracies, they're going to invest because at the end of the day, the value in the investment is there. And they think that in 10 to 15 years, they'll be able to see a return on the investment. And that's that's all that China China cares about, by the way, right? Uh, Which is strikingly different from from Russia, right? Which which has interests beyond the economic. Yeah, and that's an interesting one, the Russian one. But, uh, but I would say, John, that I do think that maybe not, uh, pro- not sort of uh, objective number one, but somewhere down that objective list, you know, certainly having you know, a good, strong geo, uh, you know, geostrategic footprint in the Western Hemisphere uh, amid sort of the discussions of uh, rolling out the Belt and Road Initiative, the flipping of the Panama Canal, sure. I don't think that hurts sure. them either. I think those are all part of the, geo- the grand sort of grand geo strategy. Right. In terms of this growing, hey, where are we going to be relative to the United States 20, 30 years from now? Right. And so I, I think, you know, when you think long term like that, you know, having, um, you know, having a stronghold in Venezuela and, and seeing Venezuela come back to a point of, of stability uh, in which oil production is solid, maybe akin to, you know, the way the, the Americans saw, you know, places like Saudi Arabia or other other ventures where sort of having that geostrategic footprint. Uh, had a economic benefit, but it also had a political. Well, and China is already ramping up their investments in Latin American infrastructure exponentially. So I guess the other, you know, facet to this is how much of that investment is going to Venezuela at this point. So if they're turning around and changing their policies, what percentage of Chinese capital is actually going to Venezuela over other places, and how does that compare? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a yeah. good question. I, I think that, you know, I mean, uh, for all analysis says that Venezuela still remains the largest recipient of, of Chinese investment. And, and no doubt that there's investments going on uh, elsewhere. But I think in terms of its portfolio, uh, Venezuela is still pretty dominant. Now, I think what might be interesting sort of going forward is if, in fact, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is far more than infrastructure, by the way, uh, if the Belt and Road Initiative does truly start to take root in Latin America more, uh, less as sort of just let's throw in, let's throw uh, uh, infrastructure projects to the wall and see what sticks, but more of a part of a, a broader global uh, Chinese strategy. I think I then think you'll start to see um, investments increase in other places throughout the region. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, John, um, what what other shots, you, you, thoughts you, do you, you have on this? Yeah, I was just going to say you've seen some of it already, right? In in countries that were ideologically friendly to to China, right? You saw enormous Chinese investment in Ecuador, for example, during yeah. Rafael Correa's time in, in power, his decade in power. Um, you know, not to the degree that we saw in Venezuela, but but a great deal of investment. And, uh, it, yeah, and I think the Chinese will probably look to invest in places like Panama and Colombia. Right. And they're going to I mean, at the end of the day, they don't discriminate in terms of that's exactly right. right? That's right. I mean, they just invested how many billions into the fourth bridge over the Panama Canal? Yeah. Uh, At the end of the day, you know, Panama was a really big victory for them. Um, But but make no mistake about it. The the Chinese have been uh, invested in Panama uh, for a very long time. If you remember when the Panama Canal was turned over. Uh, from from the Americans, yes. it was turned back over to the Panamanians. There were four companies that won the contracts to do sort of the 
uh, help with sort of the 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 um, you know controlling the port. Operations. Uh, two yeah. were yeah port operations. Two were Chinese. One was from Hong Kong. I think one was from mainland Hutchinson Wampoa, right? And then you had a British and American company. Those are the four companies. And so China has been on the ground there for a while. In fact, the, the, the expanding of the canal was largely perceived to be benefiting, you know, the large Chinese tanks. Absolutely. With. Um, and so now the sort of flipping of, of the, you know, you know, recognizing China over Taiwan, um, I think, is a political victory for the Chinese. But certainly they've been engaged economically for a long time. They've also been engaged diplomatically in the Caribbean and Latin America for a long time, precisely for the for that recognition, right, for in, in terms of international diplomacy, investments in places, small places, right, like St. Lucia, St. Kitts and Nevis, yeah. right, the, the types of things actually that Chavez did throughout the, the early 2000s, making these strategic long... With, with Petro Yeah, strategic medium and long-term investments in order to down the road depend on those governments for uh, for diplomatic support or support in, in the international community, right? Uh, yeah, let me, let me throw two, two kind of wildcard questions in there real quick. So um, let's call it kind of a lightning round now. So wh- what is, is China building a more direct relationship with all of these? Are most of its relationships bilateral or does it have a pretty strong presence uh, in terms of its relationship with the OAS or the Pacific Alliance or some of these other uh, sort of larger coalitions in the region as compared to what they do individually with all these different countries? I think it's a much more bilateral relationship uh, than anything else. China's presence in the OAS is basically non-existent. Okay. Right. You see places in, in so, Europe, small, you have, uh, Norway has a larger presence in the OAS than China does. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, let, me, let me add something to that, because I'm, I'm not going to disagree with John. I think John's right that the composition of actual engagement is largely bilateral. But I will tell you that I think that um, the Chinese may be thinking about filling the gaps left by the United States as the United States uh, starts to reevaluate multilateral arrangements. Right? <laughs> and so there's just at least Big this time. general <laughs> idea that the Americans yeah. want to pull out of multilateralism and that the Chinese may fill that space. I mean, uh, you know, and for the most part, we're not seeing strong evidence in this region outside of maybe something like CELAC, yeah. right? And don't forget, CELAC actually hosted one of its meetings yes. in Beijing, uh, maybe Beijing or Guangzhou, I, I don't recall. Um, but but I, I, there are some, there's some sense that China may be looking to fill some of that space in multilateral organizations if the United States, in fact, does start to pull back. Right. And there's and there's several countries in Latin America that have really taken the lead with um, organizations like CELAC. Uh, I think Chile's one of them. I had the former ambassador yeah. Jorge Heine on uh, the last podcast and his insight was was incredible. I mean, he's worked with India, with China, uh, with Sri Lanka. And the insights that he has on, and this is fairly recent as well, you know, 2015, I think, uh, was when he was ambassador to, to China, if I remember correctly. And so a lot of the, the capacity building in terms of diplomacy between Latin America as a whole, not just Chile, but Latin America as a whole, um, has been through these, these conduits like that, like Chile. Um, yeah, and I, and I suspect, Mike, that um, some of, China's apprehensions engaging more direct, more directly in some of these multilateral organizations is the fact that that these multilateral organizations are largely dominated by the United States, right? And I, I think that's sort of the one things that you see is that China has been a little hesitant to be directly confrontational to sure, the United States, right. particularly in this hemisphere, sure. out, maybe outside of Mexico, where I think there's been some more intentional uh, direct uh, engagement that was somewhat 
you know, counter to, to U.S. interests. But for the most part, China's uh, been very reluctant to engage head on. And I, I think it's for, the, for one simple reason. I recall reading this in a, in a Chinese uh, 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 national defense white paper that the Chinese wanted to go in places where the Americans um, uh, would not get rattled because they wanted to avoid U.S. attempts to contain uh, their rise. Right. And so they were going to be looking for outlets to engage in which they didn't have to worry about sort of these systems dominated by the United States where the United States could constrain any type of upward mobility that they had. And so, you know, the fact that they went to CELAC, where the United States doesn't have a presence, vice the OAS, I think is indicative of that approach. Let's, let's avoid direct confrontation with the Americans, and, but, but let's still engage multilateral because there is some value there. But, but, but at the end of the day, John, John is still right that up until this point, it's still been dominated by the bilateral context. I think that's a really important point you raise, Brian, about China filling in the margins and going places where it's not going to pose kind of a direct threat to the United States. I think that is a very astute observation. And that could change in, in 10, 20 years, right? I, I sure. think China's concerned right now that it's not ready uh, to be uh, more directly confrontational. The trade conflict that's going on now, and, and notice I'm not saying trade war, but, but certainly the trade conflict between the United States and China is the first real provocative mm-hmm. uh, entanglement that you're seeing the Americans and the Chinese engage in in sort of this broader global landscape, right? This sort of right. broader security landscape. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this rolls out. Um, whether or not the Chinese are going to, you know, dig in, um, you know, and, and maybe the Americans are, are, are kind of banking that they're not ready to dig in. Well, um, but but that's that's the dance. Unfortunately, that's when you look at CELAC and some of these other places, as far as the United States is concerned, it's like we've kind of given both the Latin America region and China and a couple of other actors sort of reasons to look to each other for more multilateral trade agreements rather than trying to to. Uh, Sort of win these 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 uh, I guess you could call them uh, conflicts of of escalation, as it were. You know, when it comes to trade, like if we have it, if Latin America can turn more towards the Chinese, or the Chinese more towards Latin America for its commodities, or for to fill some of the gaps that are that end up being there because of their relationship with the U.S. now or in the near future. I mean, they. I, I think we've sort of promoted this. In it. Well, I mean, Venezuela is a good case in that, you know, look, the Chinese are engaged there, and that's the dominant sort of, uh, um, you know, economic landscape for the Chinese. And that's largely because the Americans have pulled out and said, look, we're not going to engage. Right. So the United States has said, we're not going to engage with Venezuela. Um, you know, in terms of direct engagement. So the Chinese have kind of, that's and, where they've been going. And that seems to be um, one of the drawbacks been... when we disengage from any place, even if we need to diplomatically or otherwise, um, then the, the it's like the Chinese are there to fill that gap. And uh, it looks like we lost John. Um, so Brian, I guess it's you and me for the next few minutes until uh, you have to go. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Because now John doesn't have an opportunity to tell me I'm wrong. So that's cool. So let's go. No, okay. I mean, the point that you're making is an important one because I think that, you know, sort of from a policy perspective, you know, not engaging in Venezuela. And by the way, I want to be very clear. Um, I have no admiration for the, for the Maduro regime and sort of the kleptocracy that's in Venezuela today. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a fraud. I think that they have, um, you, know, um, you know, they have dug this hole um, in just mismanagement, corruption, the illicit trafficking, all of that is, is, is a matter of fact, not opinion. And I don't so think anyone's in denial I, of that. You know, whether, 
Right. And, and whether or not um, there's a change of heart in some form where there's acceptance that they have taken it down the wrong path and they're willing to go in a different direction. I mean, that's again, uh, that that's on them. But but I will tell you that the fact that we're not at the table allows for countries that really don't care about what's going on in terms of their political preferences, like China, like Russia. Right. To engage more more directly. And, and the, the problem with that, though, is that imagine if we wake up in a decade or so. And the Chinese do, in fact, you know, uh, have you know, a strong hold on Venezuelan oil production. And so now you're talking about um, in, a, in, a, in a world where you're starting to see some form of, a, of, of not alignment, but realignment, right? Where there's sort of these alliances that are kind of jockeying in different spaces where, you know, look, Turkey, uh, Iran, Russia, China, uh, Venezuela. The, these are all countries that now when you put them all together in the aggregate, right? Uh, can certainly challenge U.S. dominance over the rules of the game. In other words, they can find ways to move beyond, um, you know, the, the, the wrath of. Well, I mean, it's, it's very simple. They can basically right? not they, they can basically take America out of the game simply by not deal, dealing with us. When but they, that's maybe that's right. part of the design. Right. Um, and so that's where that's where, you know, the United States has to be a little cautious in the case of Venezuela, where it's not Cuba. Right. If you want to have a moral perspective against, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, Cuba's Cuba's failures and you want to say, look, you know, we're not going to engage until, you know, the casters are out. And now we're not going to engage until Diaz Canal, uh, which, again, I think this was the Obama administration's pivot in, in uh, you know, in 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 Cuba, which the Trump administration hasn't reversed, uh, you know, in, at least in, in, in concept. But but this is where, you know, sort of that's. The concept of isolation is is very different in terms of its, you know, its its potential outcome, because in the case of isolating Venezuela, you're isolating a state that has an abundance of resources. Right. Right. That that I mean, you're talking about the found, one of the founding members of OPEC oil in 1917, by the way, founding member of OPEC has yielded oil uh, for as a source of international influence since, you know, since since the discovery. Well, in and it's not just about having U.S. access to, to those resources, but also who's going to have access <laughs> to them if we don't. So. Because uh, we only depend on what <clears throat> right. I mean, that's um, of our oil comes from Venezuela at this point. Yeah. Down from, I can't remember yep. what it was, say yep. five, five or six years ago. But yeah, I mean, it was double digits. But but the you know that that's that's again created space, and that's why we you know we were talking about the Chinese, and you know on the Russian side too. The Russians are engaged. Make no mistake about it. Through Rosnet, uh, they're engaged. And in fact, the, the and and by the way, we tend to see a distinction between our private sector. And our public sector interests, right? To some degree. I mean, at the end of the day, our public sector doesn't drive our private sector. Uh, you know, the well, American well, people like to think it doesn't, but Chevron. And... <laughs> well, no, I, I, Mike, I, I have to believe it doesn't. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Chevron, Exxon, it, it's a, it's more of a, a negotiation, but there is autonomy there. At the end of the day, Chevron, Exxon. I mean, you got you have um, you have major uh, tech companies now pushing back on the U.S. government, saying, "Sorry, we're not going to develop that kind of stuff because it goes against our ethics," right? And so at the end of the day, our private sector does have that capacity to say, at not this time. It's not in our interest as an autonomous entity, right, as an independent entity. That's not, that's not how these organizations work as extensions right. of Russia well, and China. Well, thank, thank God right? for modern, modern transparency, though, because uh, the behavior of, of these private entities now is, I think, steered a little bit by the, the public opinion and the transparency that has sort of been, you know, heaped upon them and other private sector entities for the last ten years or so. Well, look, I, I'm not, 
maybe here in the United States, Mike, but but travel the region and you're going to see, you know, um, you're going to see Chinese cell phones all over the place. Right. Even though there is enough, um, you know, open source information out there on the fact that, you know, Huawei, ZTE, you know, um, you know, are, are, are breaching data privacy, privacy. Right. Um, they, they, they use this information to, to gain competitive advantages, et cetera. That has not stopped you know, the surge in buying Chinese technology just simply because the, it's cheap. And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's less about the return on investment of the technologies, right? I mean, that's important, certainly as a business, as a solve, financially solvent organization, but that's not all it's about. It's also, it has to also take into account the interests of Beijing or the interests of Moscow. See, that's not the case with American enterprises. True. When they go in the region, you know, they may think about American interests in the sort of grand scope, but they're not saying, I wonder if this is, is uh, in line with Washington's objectives, right? No, but Huawei and ZTE do that. Rosnet, you know, who's led by Igor Sechin, who uh, is a close uh, personal friend and ally of Vladimir Putin. Um, in fact, uh, you can find things on the web that sort of pin Igor Sechin as a former KGB agent that used to run weapons in Latin America. So he's no stranger to the region. And he's he's had a big hand in sort of the Russian relationship with uh, with with Venezuela. Uh, in fact, I've heard that there's a, 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 some monument or statue that's dedicated to him in some small remote town that he's frequented. Oh, that's uh, in interesting. Venezuela. But but again, but again, that just shows that, you know, it, we pulled out of that space. And I think we left that space open to some degree for, you know, for for American right. right for U.S. Right. Well, and that begs Russia the question, China. you know, what should um, our policies be in the future with some of these other ones that, you know, are kind of on the cusp as well, like Nicaragua um, before we before, you know, it's. It's mm-hmm. tough, Mike, real quick, because I, I think there's another important point there. And then I'll, I'll shut up and, and we can sort of wrap up. But, you know, we, we also as and I, I don't call this a disadvantage because I, I believe in the values of, of our democracy. You know, but one of the things that we're sort of doing with one arm tie behind our back is, you know, we, we do have to uh, concern ourselves with sort of domestic perceptions as well. So, you, you know, uh, I, I once had someone say, well, why are the Americans engaging in North Korea but won't engage in Venezuela? You know what the answer is? There are no North Korean constituencies here that can, you know, elect people in and out of That's office. That's true. That's true. But there are Venezuelan very large Venezuelan here, constituencies, right? and they they generally and, and so have at a the very, end of the day, uh, strong position with with uh, Cuban constituencies as well, Cuban American constituencies. Well, listen, you can see just in South Florida, you know, the rhetoric coming out uh, from the you know the the race with uh, with Senator Bill Nelson and and Governor. Uh, you know, Scott, uh, you know, there's been they, they've they gone excessively, particularly Nelson. Uh, Senator Nelson has gone, you know, um, and, and, you know, quite often goes on the sort of, you know, the, the you know, uh, the supporting the Venezuelan diaspora and speaking out against the, you know, the, the, the regime. And I, I think, again, uh, I, I'm not saying that he's being disingenuous about it or Scott's being disingenuous, but there is a political experience to it. Right. But that's a product of the democratic system that we adhere to, which, again, I believe in wholeheartedly. But again, that's one of the big differences between the way we compete in the international system and the way the Russians and the Chinese compete. Those were some great insights from John and Brian. Unfortunately, time and connectivity have run out for us in this episode. So tune in next time as we follow up with more on Russian relationships and influence in the region and the country's ties to Venezuela. Thank you for listening to this episode of Latin American Intersections business, geopolitics, and security in the LAC region. 
Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. A big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.